Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we will talk about the rapidly growing influence of China in the Western Balkans. We'll discuss to what extent Chinese engagement follows a coherent strategy, what it means for countries in the region, and what European policymakers can and should do about it. I'm happy to welcome Maida Ruger, who's a senior policy fellow in ECFR's Wider Europe program with a focus in the Western Balkans. Vladimir Shopov, who is a visiting fellow with ECFR's Asia program, has a wide range of experiences as a policy advisor to Bulgarian ministers and institutions. And finally, and uh, at least as importantly, we have Vesta Chanova, who's deputy director of ECFR, head of our software office and mastermind of all matters to do with the Balkans, um, not just in ECFR, but in the wider world as well. Thank you all very much for joining. We're going to start with this big topic about how the Western Balkans is once again a site for great power competition. Vesla, why don't you start by giving us an overview? To what extent do you see the great power competition that we're seeing taking place in the world playing out in the Western Balkans today? First of all, the Western Balkans seem to be very close to Europe and part of Europe. But on the other hand, they look a bit like up for grabs. This is a region where various players can have their impact, they can have their initiatives and they unfold them fairly freely. Besides the EU, obviously there is Russia, there is Turkey, these are two traditional players. China has arrived maybe 10 years ago or a little longer, but in the past couple of years, it has become really very visible. And uh, it is not only about infrastructure and investment, about cheap loans. It is also about China's way of doing things. And China's geopolitical goals seem to still remain a bit under the radar of European attention. And and this is really surprising, again, given how close the region is uh, to the rest of Europe. I'd like to go to, to Vladimir in looking at much more closely at Chinese engagement in the region. But before we do that, maybe Maida, you can tell me why there's so much hysteria about China's economic engagement. As far as I know, the country only accounts for 6% of regional trade. It's not trying to invade any Western Balkans countries. You don't have the same sort of history of tension around it that we have with Russia. Why is everyone so hysterical about China being involved in the region? Why is it not good for China to provide extra investment in countries that um, have been uh, maybe dangerously dependent on the European Union? Thank you, Mark. Well, short answer is because it's big and um, it's coming, you know, with Uh, relatively high amounts of money and it's entering into the areas which are strategically actually very important for the EU, especially if you look from the point of view of its connectivity agenda. But if I might just go a step back with this alarmist picture and just address one more time the question of, you know, China is not alone, right? So we're talking about 
Russian, Chinese, Turkish and GCC presence and influence in the region. And it does produce a very alarmist picture. They're all authoritarian. They're all big and encroaching at the same time on these tiny states of two, three, seven million people. And I think from the point of view of EU foreign policy, an important question is really differentiating between these powers and their goals. We know they're all present politically in terms of investment in infrastructure, energy, you know, digital, etc. But what are they really up to and are they all equally damaging for EU's interest in the region, right? And I'd just like to point out here that, you know, if you take Turkey, for instance, Compared to Russia, it's more moderate and less obstructive. It fully supports NATO and EU membership of Western Balkan 6. Russia is diametrically opposed. It's, you know, single most important objective is to keep the region out of NATO and obstruct its EU membership path. It has supported, you know, a coup in Montenegro in 2016, et cetera, et cetera. And then China comes on the top of all of these actors with, you know, relatively high amounts of money and keeps entrenching really the political elites and contributing to further democratic erosion in the country that is already underway. So I think in combination, it is indeed somewhat alarmist. Okay, so we'll go into more detail about why it's okay for Germany to trade with all these countries and not okay for Balkan countries. I'm sure these (laughs) things will come up. But um, Vladimir, why don't you tell us a bit more about how China is engaging with what are the sort of key areas where China has got involved? Are there big differences between different countries? The wider context of China's engagement actually has to do with the fact that, you know, the Western Balkans are clearly part of the European component of its global going out strategy. And and clearly the perception there is that they represent something of a strategic underbelly which allows them to uh, you know to gain entry and to set themselves up along the periphery of the EU in an increasing number of uh, ways and manners and then develop those further but also we we have to understand that there is a wider political reason why China is engaging and it has to do with a diplomatics numbers game uh, you know we should never underestimate you know the wider diplomatic aim of China simply trying to, you know, stack up the numbers uh, in terms of countries supporting it in different international organizations, etc., etc. In terms of the areas of engagement, you know, the easy answer to this and the easy approach to this is to simply say, well, it's kind of focused on infrastructure and energy and uh, there is, it's really no such a big deal because its relative weight is not so significant and all the rest of it. But two things are important to appreciate. One is that the, over the last couple of years, China has been expanding quite aggressively beyond these areas of engagement. It's going beyond them and it's increasingly setting up partnership and relationships in, in, you know, in academia, in culture, in civil society, in media. It's expanding even its political and party cooperation. So it really makes sense to begin to look at this as an integrated whole uh, which is kind of multi-component, multi-level. And, and the last point on this, which I think you know, we need to really appreciate, is that you know, these initial investments and these inv- you know, initial economic engagements, they really function as, uh, as entry investments. In other words, you know, allowing China to kind of gain a foothold 
and then diversify and go into different directions as a consequence of the opportunities that it has gained by virtue of making these initial spectacular engagements. And the mechanics of that are quite interesting, but maybe more about that later on in the program. Okay. Vesta, maybe if we put this into a kind of bigger picture, I suppose, you know, we're used to the Balkan countries having a kind of multi-vector foreign policy. Tito, in fact, even gave a name to the idea of, of trying to manage relationships between different players. And then we went for a period where we thought that rather than playing a kind of Tito-like game, the future for Western Balkan countries was, was about Euro-Atlantic enlargement, joining NATO, joining the European Union. The EU, however, has been somewhat dragging its feet on, on the enlargement process for a long period of time. Reform processes have stalled in many of these Balkan countries. Is that why people are so worried about this? Does this basically mean a kind of return to, to a kind of Titoist past rather than uh, being fully integrated into Euro-Atlantic structures? Is that what's going on? It's important to understand that this Titoist drive has been there all along. And this is maybe one lesson that especially Serbia has learned throughout the 20th century that when it can pick and choose, it's actually in a better position than others in the region. I'm saying this also understanding that for some of us in the other (laughs) countries in the region, this has been actually, the lesson has been exactly the opposite. But anyway, the the pick and choose uh, trajectory has not been bringing too much return in the past, simply because uh, the attraction of the EU and NATO for the countries in the region has been uh, very strong. Now that it has somewhat gone down, also because the EU itself is not really willing to push for enlargement right now, it seems that this strategy of playing, you know, Russia against the EU and China against NATO and so on, all of that is bringing a lot of benefit to some of to some of the leaders, and we saw this very vividly uh, around the COVID crisis and, and the vaccines. Obviously, Serbia, I mean, Vucic has used that to kind of build uh, his profile as the geopolitical tsar of the region in a way, offering various vaccines, uh, playing with China, kissing the Chinese flag, at the same time claiming how European he is. You know, all of that has benefited in a way his rule. But also we have to understand that this was built on the reluctance of the EU to really step in. I mean, North Macedonia has been asking for a couple of thousand vaccines uh, at the peak of the crisis to vaccinate its doctors and it didn't get it from the EU. And this was really, I thought, a, a big mistake. There is at the same time also some sort of a kind of, what should I say, almost kind of post-colonial syndrome going on in the region, which is directed against uh, against Europe. And we should understand that. In a way, being told what to do is, is not very welcome uh, around here anymore. And I think uh, this is also very fertile ground for, for Chinese, Russians and others. Can I add a little bit on this? Uh, because I, I think there is an important shift happening, which I've noticed during my 
trips around the uh, around the region. I, I think you know quite rightly we we tend and you know we are likely to perceive the whole sort of hedging multi-directional foreign policy in kind of uh, you know uh, in historical terms. But what what I'm what I'm beginning to witness really is the expansion. And in a way, the democratization within these societies of this approach in the sense that, you know, people are increasingly approaching international affairs and, you know, uh, international economics via multipolarity. And, uh, and there is an increasing, increasing tendency to think about ways in which you can actually utilize multipolarity beyond the field of foreign policy, beyond the field of, uh, of politics. You know, it's, it's kind of beginning to function almost as a sort of new common sense that uh, we are basically, you know, stuck in geopolitical terms. There is no realistic timeline of our you know joining the european uh, union uh, and uh, this this political reality used to be perceived as something transitory and i think in a way we are going we're going beyond that so i i think you know to my mind at least you know this might be the beginnings of an important of an important uh, shift that we need to bear in mind so we've been talking in very general terms so far maybe it's time to get a bit more specific and see how this plays out in different countries. Maida, can we maybe start with Montenegro? Because there's been lots of fuss about the the situation in Montenegro. Do you want to explain briefly why people have been talking about China in Montenegro? Sure. So basically, the big story, which is actually not a new story, I mean, it's been going on for a while, it really broke out now when the new Montenegrin deputy prime minister, kind of not in a very articulate uh, manner, asked uh, the European Union in the Foreign Affairs Committee in the European Parliament to help Montenegro refinance Uh, It's debt to China, which is around $1 billion for the construction of a highway that's supposed to connect the port of Bar to, you know, to Serbia, which is landlocked and then continues up there to Central Europe. And, you know, it's an interesting case, um, Montenegro, of really the importance of local agency in this whole story. Because when we talk about, you know, Chinese presence in the region, we generally think of China as this big monster encroaching upon these small countries without any agency. But the reason why we find ourselves in this situation with Montenegro is that, you know, Montenegrin government, partly because it couldn't get EU financing on favorable terms, and the Montenegrin highway construction was deemed, you know, not economically viable, has turned to China for this considerably, you know, for, for a 900 billion loan to uh, for 42 kilometers of highway uh, under very untransparent and unfavorable terms of contract for Montenegro, which really includes some, you know, unclear clauses and the contract as in terms of the collateral uh, in case of non-payment and gives Chinese courts uh, and Chinese legal system the jurisdiction over any disputes. And so you now have a situation where, you know, the new government, in a way, in a little bit in an attempt to present itself as pro-European and Europe-oriented, 
has in fact, you know, done a diplomatic faux pas because without really looking at what the EU can or not do and what the terms of contract are, it has produced this debate about is the EU going to come in and save it? And, you know, on one hand, it's basically procedurally not possible. And on the other hand, there's a lot of contractual constraints to this happening, given that, you know, China needs to give its consent. Now, just to kind of jump to the present day, you know, where we are with this debate, it seems that, you know, Montenegro can proceed with the payment of this loan, although its debt has really skyrocketed almost up to 100% of its GDP. But it is continuing this very untransparent practice of servicing its old debt by emitting its government bonds on international markets at, you know, 5% interest rates, much less favorable than what IMF or EU can offer, um, and at shorter repayment periods. So it's getting itself, in a way, into the debt trap, not only towards the Chinese, um, but on international markets, which at one point it might not be able to finance. And just the last point, you know, to stress how important the agency here is, the same government, you know, that is now turning to the EU for, you know, some sort of help is trying to pass a law, which, you know, just last night was in the parliament, which could very much politicize, again, the appointments of the key uh, uh, prosecutors in the judiciary um, against the recommendations of the Venice Commission, which has issued its opinion two days ago. So we again have the story of, you know, government potentially going um, in a certain way, uh, which is just creating more fertile ground for not just Chinese, but also Russian influence. And I would say, you know, just to wrap that up, that this is absolutely the same factor which is present in Serbia. Just tying out onto what Vesela said earlier about President Vucic being able to, you know, use this COVID crisis to, you know, entrench himself really politically. It's not just about balancing between, you know, Europe and China. Why China is so important for these political elites that are highly unaccountable, undemocratic uh, and kleptocratic is that Chinese and Russian either money or political support helps entrench the political power. Um, and so, you know, they use them also very, very strategically towards these goals. Okay. So, Vesa, we, we've kind of using Montenegro as a way of, of looking at some of the, the sort of more concrete aspects of, uh, of Chinese engagement. European policymakers haven't talked that much about the Western Balkans in recent years. On Monday, they had their first discussion in two years, uh, which is quite strange considering how close the Balkans are to us and, and how important they've been at various points in European history. How do you see these sorts of external act activities in the Balkans changing the, the calculus amongst Europeans? What do you think EU should do now? I don't know what is the answer, frankly. I think the EU is a bit in a in a dead end in terms of the enlargement, which is mainly because uh, there are too many interests within the EU against kind of reviving the enlargement in a big way, which prevents, uh, on the other hand, the EU from from really thinking conceptually about its its approach to the region and this is the main void uh, that is created there now the us is very much willing to partner with the eu on stabilizing the balkans but it's really up to up to europe to 
to come up with a new initiative that would capture the imagination of, of the Balkan societies, who by now see Brussels as a stabilizing factor for the autocratic elites, but not really a big uh, help for the everyday troubles of, of the Balkan people. And so what they tend to do is just to emigrate. And I think this is a big issue because um, you create a territory which stagnates economically, politically, demographically, where everybody can exert their influence as a result. And there is no framework that would help kind of approach the region in a, in a strategic way. We see this with Russia. There is uh, the issue of energy dependency, which is still there. There is the issue of China, Montenegro being really a very striking case where a small country is basically on its knees right now for its own faults, quite clearly. But uh, I think these are a small crises that can amount to something bigger given the tendency to go back to issues of history, borders, ethnicities, which we see in the past months and years coming up again. So I think this stagnation uh, is on a dangerous uh, trajectory and one should see uh, the complete picture whereby the foreign actors are clearly a big part of, but I think EU's lack of strategy is something that is actually the base for all of that happening. So, Vladimir, you've just written a policy brief uh, for ECFR looking at how European policymakers should react to growing Chinese engagement in the region. Do you want to lay out some of the ideas that you put into that? I fully agree with the wider points that Vesela just made in terms of, uh, you know, really articulating a big picture, sort of wider geopolitical stance on on how European engagement will proceed in the in the in the region. But I think, you know, while this is happening, there are still options. You know, there are still opportunities to try and influence developments in the region. And, and really, there are a number of ways in which this can be done. One would be to come up with alternative funding options in the field of infrastructure. There is clear engagement and interest, and you know, from the U.S. side now, via its uh, you know regional representation of, the, of its development bank. The EU, at least you know rhetorically, is willing to engage in kind of similar approach. There are also opportunities to support some of the, you know, the countries in the region through their engagement in the energy community. Uh, you know, in, again, investment standards, all of these things. Also, I think the European Union should maybe consider shifting around some of its overall, the structure of its overall funding, rather than trying to folk, you know, to spend resources, you know, across the entire range of policy sectors. You know, maybe the European Union should take a fresh look and identify the key areas, you know, where it needs to focus uh, its attention and kind of approach this from a kind of more geopolitical uh, perspective. Also, I think just one last point on this, the EU can front load some of the, 
European uh, legislation. You know, this is why we changed the methodology for the negotiations in order to counter some of the intentional or non-intentional missteps of many of the governments in the region. You know, when it comes to economic governments, how you manage debt, which standards in which areas need to be implemented first. And, you know, this is not just technocratic talk. I mean, you know, this has real important immediate political consequences. Because, you know, the case of Montenegro also shows that transparency is really quite quite fundamental because the contract that the government has signed has a number of uh, traps within itself. Maida mentioned the, the jurisdictional trap, but there is an even worse one that has to do with potential seizure of strategic assets. So although a lot of these approaches sound kind of non-sexy in foreign policy terms, I I would say that there is quite a bit of mileage if the European Union really wants to be geopolitical in its action and not simply in its uh, its rhetoric. Isn't there a a contradiction in the heart of what Vladimir is saying, Maida? On the one hand, we're basically saying that countries in the region, the governments, are deliberately trying to move away from Euro-Atlantic integration so that they can have more freedom of action, they can do what they want to do. And at the same time, Vladimir is talking about is ways of going back more to a kind of enlargement mindset where we're trying to micromanage the politics of these individual countries, which is exactly what they're trying to escape from. In theory, yes. In practice, no, Mark, because the governments are not trying to get away from European integration. What they're trying to do is have their cake and eat it. They've realized over the past two decades that they can actually get away with it and still claim, you know, that they're on the EU integration path. So they're actually having it both ways. I mean, you know, we keep going- the solution is you think the solution might be for Europeans actually to play hardball and, and well, say that hardball, be willing to use both political and economic leverage towards addressing this nexus between the core problem. And the core problem, let's be honest, is not China. The first one is state capture and undemocratic regimes. And then comes China on the top of it. I mean, just to kind of illustrate through the example of Serbia and Vucic, how this tolerance of democratic backsliding by Brussels and, you know, generally EU member states has allowed Vucic to switch around entirely public opinion on China and Serbia. So if you look at the polls from Serbia from 2005, only 3% of respondents had a very favorable opinion of China, whereas in 2018, 56% of Serbians had favorable opinions of China. In 2020, a little bit after the pandemic, the opinion polls put China much higher, right? And so what happens is that Vucic, who has been able to, over years, consolidate government's control over media, over public discourse, was, you know, really able to very skillfully use this pandemic to promote a very false image of European Union absolutely failing to deliver and help Serbia and propping up also falsely and exaggerating um, Chinese aid. So in the long run, it's really, and, and by the way, most of it was not done for China, but most of it was done to kind of consolidate his own power and an image of a leader who has a powerful sidekick and is able to maneuver the country around through crisis. We're almost out of time, but there's one great power we haven't mentioned yet in all of this, which is the U.S. VESA. To what extent do you think 
that America is now a kind of relevant actor in the region? Are there ways of thinking about using uh, American engagement, even if it's much less than it was in the past, to, to strengthen what Europe's trying to do? Clearly, there is an expectation in the region that Washington is going to be more active, more constructive, more long-term engaged, unlike Trump, who was going for the quick wins and wanted to sign anything uh, just for the sake of having the picture. At the same time, I think Washington is much more cautious in uh, what sort of engagement it would be ready to embark on. We can also see that this level of of the U.S. administration is not really fully confirmed, meaning that uh, some of the key players are still not in place there. But I think in general, the U.S. will be looking for options of cooperation with the EU vis-a-vis the Balkans. And the EU should be really the proactive part of this. Okay, it's been a fascinating discussion. I'm sure we'll come back to it. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Bessa, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I am reading Margaret Macmillan's book on war because we have long forgotten, it seems, what war really is. However, we in the Balkans know that it was here less than uh, 25 years ago. So it's a fascinating collection of various examples how stupid people can be. So I hope we don't get to that in the Balkans. What about you, Vladimir? I'm reading the latest book by Daniel Yergin that came out uh, at the end of last year. It's called A New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. And it's actually a really fascinating, detailed, in-depth look at the current and the future transformations in the entire energy uh, sector. But, you know, looking way beyond the much talked about greening, uh, but really the ways in which different societies in different important parts of the world are going to be severely undermined and shaken by the transformations in the uh, in the energy sector. Mark, uh, I'll be brutally honest. As a mother of two small kids, I'm reading a lot of Dr. Zeus and Rodal these days. <laughs> but I do have a book on my desk, which I hope to, to get to very soon, which is The Third Revolution by Elizabeth Economy. Fantastic. And I uh, just started a book called Doom by uh, Neil Ferguson, the Stanford historian, and we hope to get him on the podcast very soon to talk about it. So I will not spoil that podcast by going into any more detail on it, but it is very interesting. Thank you so much for listening to us. If you've enjoyed the experience, please don't be shy to let other people know about it by writing about it on, and above all by heading to whatever platform you use to download the podcast on and hopefully giving us a positive review and a five-star rating. But for now, from Vesla Chanova, Maida Ruger, Vladimir Shopov, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR podcast is Lucy Halpertal, and our editor is Marlene Riegel.